Hello and welcome to Hell Is For Hyphenates. My name is Lee Zachariah, and we're releasing this episode on Halloween, which is appropriate because, like the ubiquitous horror movie icons Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, and Sean Bean, we are back from the dead. If you listen to our quote-unquote final episode in April, then you'll have heard me flag the idea that the show would be back in some form or another. But even then, I didn't think it would be back so soon. I was determined to give it a bit more time, but when the opportunity to speak to this episode's guest presented itself, there was no way I could say no. If you're a newcomer to this show, then you picked the strangest time to join, but you know, welcome. Uh, The premise is very simple. We talk to filmmakers, actors, comedians, authors, and people from all walks of life, not about their own work, but about the work of a filmmaker they admire or were influenced by. And this episode, I am very excited to be joined by the incredible Nicole Holofcina. You'll no doubt know Nicole from her films Walking and Talking, Lovely and Amazing, Friends with Money, Please Give, Enough Said, and The Land of Steady Habits. She's also worked in TV, directing episodes of Sex and the City, Gilmore Girls, Six Feet Under, Parks and Recreation, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Orange is the New Black, and so many others. Earlier this year, she received an Academy Award nomination for her work on the screenplay for the brilliant Can You Ever Forgive Me? And we also talked about her on this show back in 2015, when our guest Pollyanna McIntosh selected Nicole as her filmmaker. I just really, really like her movies. I really, really love her honesty and the subjects that she explores. She's just a very human filmmaker and it's very realistic stuff. And she's so sparse, so wonderfully sparse in her dialogue, but says so much through her actors and really allows them to inhabit the characters um, that she writes so well. And a lot of the subject matter of her films is kind of brutal and difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, but she has these very identifiable characters and they just make it poignant and hilarious. And she's really a chronicler of female behavior in quite a exciting way to me. I've been hooked on Nicole's films since 2006's Friends With Money, and it was a real thrill to talk to her. Nicole was surprised to learn that none of our previous guests had picked the filmmaker that she chose to go with, and that is 1970s icon Hal Ashby. Ashby is best known for films like Harold and Maud, Being There, Shampoo, The Last Detail, and Coming Home. But there are hidden corners to his career that are rarely discussed, and while we naturally focus on the big titles in this chat, we do also touch on his early career, as well as his lesser-known later works. I'm flying solo on this episode, there's no co-host on this one. I don't know if that will be the norm from now on, or whether there even will be a norm or a now on at all. But stay subscribed, and perhaps some future episodes will drop unexpectedly into your podcast feed. In the meantime, please enjoy my conversation with writer, director... Oscar nominee and Hal Ashby fan, Nicole Holofcina. Nicole, welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates. Thank you very much. Um, Does that mean I'm in hell because I'm a hyphenate? Exactly, exactly. The uh, the origins of that name are shrouded in mystery. Uh, but we figure because everyone's a multi-hyphenate uh, these days, everyone does numerous things. You know, you're... You're a director, but you also write films for other people. So, you know, we're all, we're all wearing multiple hats, um, right. which actually leads me to a question... Uh, I've been meaning to ask you because, of, of course, we covered your films on the show. We did an episode devoted to your your films. Who did it? You uh, did it? No, uh, our our guest, uh, the guest who chose you was uh, Pollyanna McIntosh, an actress you know who uh, was in The Woman and she's in The Walking Dead and she's she's done a ton of things. Uh, I'll send you a link. God, to I want to see. I want to hear it. That'd be surreal. Yeah, no, it's a it's a, I re-listened to it last night and it's a, it's a it's a really fun chat. Oh, but, good. But. Uh, 
Also, we we've also did an episode devoted to the films of Alison Anders. And when we were watching that, I spotted a cameo, a prison guard. Did that look great? Yeah. Well, it was blink and you miss it. I had to really freeze frame and I was like, is that who I think it is? Uh, I was just curious. How did that come about? Did you really recognize me? I, I really recognized you. I'm shocked because I know it's been on my IMDb page forever, which is ridiculous. I mean, I knew Allison. I know Allison. And at the time she was making her movie and she said, come visit and be an extra. And I said, sure. Had I known what she was going to do to me, <laughs> how I would look, what I would do, and that it would land on my IMDb page for the next 35 years, um, I probably still would have said yes, but it's a little embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It was, it was, it was good. I like, I like the idea of you not cameoing in your own films, but appearing in other people's. It's a nice right. little twist. Yeah, yeah. I, I am happy to do that. I do sometimes cameo in my own movies, but you wouldn't know it like I'm in the dark or something. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you are, well, someone who did cameo in a lot of his own films, often turned up, is the filmmaker you've chosen to talk about on the show. Uh, you've yeah. gone with the great Hal Ashby. Uh, what what made you pick him? Um, I don't know. I think he's one of my favorite filmmakers. I, uh, you know, when people say, who's your favorite filmmaker, I kind of go blank. But I would have to say he might be um, my favorite filmmaker. I, I, that's why I picked him. Do you, do you remember your first experience with his work? Uh, well, definitely Harold and Maude was the first thing I saw. And I don't remember seeing it. I don't remember where I saw it. Or how I saw it, but I remember seeing it over and over again. And I was at a party, a very fancy Hollywood party when I was about 17 years old. And I saw Bud Court sitting at a table, a dinner table at the party. And I went up to him and I said, Oh God, you know, Harold and Maude. And he said, Oh, well, here's the director and here's the writer. And I just lost my shit. You know, <laughs> I think I pounded on the table. Um, You're Al Ashby. And, um, you know, I just, I just fell all over them, and it was a very exciting moment. Wow, that's uh, it, it's it's not often that you know the guest has actually met the filmmaker that they're talking about. What was, did you yeah. were you able to pick his brain? Did you get? Oh, I was way too embarrassed and young. You know, I, yeah. I wasn't a filmmaker. I was just a huge fan, and I, I guess I was probably I wasn't seventeen. I I think I don't know how old, about that. Maybe eighteen. I was just a huge fan and I had nothing else to say except I'm a huge fan and they were all very nice to me. Well, he, um, he had a really interesting, uh, uh, sort of origin story. He had a very difficult childhood, you know, went through, you know, his parents divorced, his father committed suicide. He, he dropped out of high school. Uh, interestingly enough, his, his studio, the studios would claim that he graduated from Utah State University, so he'd seem more like Scorsese and Coppola. That's funny. He was a character. I mean, married five times. Mm. Yeah, five I, times. I think he said he was divorced twice by the time he was 21. Yeah. Which is Yeah, and you know, you think, oh, well, you're married five times. Well, you lived a long life. But no, he died at, what, 59, yeah. 58? Yeah. So he's a um, confused fella. Mm. So, I yeah, would have married him. You would have married him? Oh, just like that. <laughs> See, that that's how that story could have gone at the party. That could have been, if you'd proposed to him there and then, maybe. That would have been very illegal and right. kind of disgusting, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, moving hastily along. Um, so he okay. then, he drift, sort of drifted into Hollywood. He became an apprentice film editor 
uh, and then a film editor and cut films like The Loved One, Cincinnati Kid, The Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, he was nominated for an Oscar for The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and won for In the Heat of the Night. And he was really good friends with Norman Jewison, who was basically his mentor. And the two of them were working together on the script for The Landlord, uh, which Jewison was going to direct. And then he sort of realized that Ashby had a massive passion for the project and said, you should be the one to direct it. Have you um, seen The Landlord? You know, I wanted to see it before I was talking to you. And I didn't, and I tried to rent it, and I saw that I couldn't rent it, and then I saw that I would buy it, and I forgot, and I actually just bought it today, so a little late. I'll be seeing it in two days, right? It right. Arrives, but I'm very. Did you see it? I did. Um, it's it's a very very strange film. It's very. It, it's it's cut like an experimental film. It's like oh, it, it it's it's someone really trying to make their mark or, or possibly just, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to ascribe a, a motive to him. Cause I don't know if he's trying to make a mark or if this is what, what he's like, why, why aren't films like this? Why don't all films Maybe look like he was this? really, really high. Mm, could very likely. Very I likely. mean, I haven't seen it, so but I don't know. Well, it's, it's interesting because it's about, uh, Bo Bridges plays, uh, a sort of slumlord, right? Yeah, yeah. He comes from this really, really rich family, and he just wants to get away from them and do something on his own. Mm-hmm. And it sort of it made me think. A lot of his films are about like he seems to be absolutely fascinated with the rich and powerful, like the mega rich. And particularly those first two films feature kids who do not want to be part of that world, trying to get away from it, trying to get away from those riches. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about your work and about how. We, re- we rarely see money as, uh, uh, you know, dealt with in dramas. Usually it's it's either the absolute focus of a film or it's not dealt with at all. People just have, if someone needs to fly to the UK for a plot point, they just magically have the money. But right. in, in so many of your films, Friends With Money, Please Give, Land of Steady Habits, you, you know, things yeah. cost money and there's that toll on people. Is there was, is there any and am I reading too much into it or, or is there a connection that you feel to, to Ashby Ashby's fascination with that? I'm sure you're reading into into it because everything I do is generally unconscious, you know, just like inspiration is, you know. I'm, I mean, I I've been really inspired by his filmmaking, not in a conscious way that I think, oh, I want to make a movie like Hal Ashby makes a movie, mm. um, but I think the reason I I love his movies so much because I relate to them. And I think the things that he writes, uh, directs the scripts that he directs, um, and makes very much his own. I feel, um, are, have topics and characters and, um, themes that I myself am fascinated by, which is money among many other things. Um, you know, money comes up all the time and, uh, how can we not be writing about it? Are, we all have such strange idiosyncrasies about money and wealth and I live in Los Angeles and um, I don't know. It's just, it's all, it's just good stuff. It's good character stuff. So after, after Harold and Maud, he, he makes mm-hmm. the last detail. Can you talk through some of your, like, are you, are you sort of a Harold and Maud fan and, and mm-hmm. like the rest of his films or is there a real, like, what is the connection to the rest of his films that you have? Well, I mean, Harold and Maude is just profound. Mm. I think it's just profound and, and, a, and a beautiful piece of work, especially with the music 
and the acting and the characters and Ruth Gordon. And obviously everybody loves that movie. The last detail I think is an amazing movie. Um, and I think what he does that I really appreciate and wish I could do is he has so much, um, trust in the viewer to understand who these characters are without telling us who they are. For instance, in the last detail, we're just thrown into this threesome. We don't have backstory. We don't know anything. We don't even know why he's going to jail. Randy Quaid is going to jail yet. And we don't know, you know, the two, are they sergeants? Where are they? Colonels, uh, whatever. I forget their, their rank, but yeah. uh, two, oh, two, they're Marines. They're they're Marines. Marines. Yeah. And, um, and what's so beautiful about that movie, I feel, is that the two Marines, um, particularly Jack Nicholson, has so many sides to him. And it's never sentimental. He's never sentimental when he is revealing that he has a heart. And he also can be so cold. And yet we don't know anything about him. And that's what's so great. And by the end of the movie, maybe you've glimpsed a little bit into their past or what makes them tick, but it doesn't really matter. It's like the present moment and the scenes that they're in and the scenes we're watching them behave in just behavior mm. is so gratifying and so telling and so moving. I feel that this movie, I mean, God, by the time, by the time it's over, I'm just wrecked. And the way they walk away at the end, the way Jack Nicholson is able to walk, it just cuts it off. It's like a survival mechanism that mm. I imagine he's had to have his whole life. Yeah. And I have to say my favorite scene in that movie, because I did watch it again, is when they're in the park and they're um, making hot dogs. Mm. I don't know how well you remember the movie, but yeah, they're yeah. making hot dogs on a, it's freezing. It's not time for him to go to jail yet. And they're making weenies. And Jack Nicholson forgot to buy buns. And the other guy's just furious because you can't enjoy a hot dog without the buns. And there are three lost men, just so lost and freezing and making hot dogs. And, I mean, it, it, I cried during that scene. Who cries during a scene where three men are making hot dogs? <laughs> And not really talking about anything. Yeah. And that's when, of course, Randy Quaid tries to get away. And then the movie switches into, I guess, more of what it was originally about, which is getting the guy to jail. Mm. It does. And that sort of sentimentality is over. But I don't know. I just love that shit. It, it's amazing. I, I only just watched it for the first time recently. And um, mm -hmm. I was trying to identify his style because it's mm -hmm. not, he's so, there's something so innately new Hollywood about him, but he's not a Mazursky or a, an Elaine May or a Robert Altman. There's something, a, you, he, all of his films look completely different and yet there is a unifying style to it. And it's something about the way he uses music, the sudden cuts, the unexpected mid shot fades to something else, like just mm -hmm. almost like a jump cut. He's, mm -hmm. he's very much an editor. He, he directs yes. with an editor's view, but, but yeah. you're right about that. So human, uh, you know, he, he's, he's not just a technical director. He's very concerned with, you know, human beings and, and showing that contradiction in people, mm -hmm. how, you know, Jack Nicholson's character is, you know, he's a complete yeah. hard ass, but, you know, he really warms to this guy. And, and Randy Quaid's character, who looks kind of dumb and smart at the same time, and he's dangerous and vulnerable at the same mm -hmm. time. It's, mm -hmm. 
we, tragic we, character. I mean, the, mm. the there's like what forty minutes in a hotel room of them getting drunk yeah. in their underpants. I mean, I don't know how long the sequence is, but I, I could watch that forever. Mm. And that's brilliant that you can do that. I mean, you have great actors um, and a great situation. Mm. Uh, he just kind of lets it go, you know. And it, it does seem like it's in a hotel room because there are no wide angles. There are no you know, beautiful shots. Yeah. Very cramped. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just want to mention the scene where they're trying to mm -hmm. teach him to be a signalman. And yes. the dialogue drowns out and there's a war movie on TV and you just mm -hmm. hear the sounds of the war come up. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of at that point I realized, and this is before I'd seen coming home, just how consumed he was with the yeah. Vietnam war and how, how it was informing so much of, of his work. Mm -hmm. I think when I saw Coming Home, I went back and watched all his movies again, or not all of them, but the ones that I really wanted to see or I had already seen, because that movie just, that just is, I think, a perfect film. Mm. We do. Um, I don't think people talk about it as much as some, like being there. Yeah. But I, I much prefer Coming Home. I think it's pretty perfect. Well, uh, we can we can jump forward to that. I don't know if you want to keep going chronologically because shampoo was next. Okay. Uh, and that was a that, that's a real sort of left turn for him. He's make, making these very gritty, you know, down. I, I want to say down to earth films. So there is something quite okay. magical about Harold and Maud. But still, shampoo is very glossy. It's a very LA film. It's it's very much right. a film you would make if you live in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, he picked it. I guess he picked it. And I know he was, he was friends with um, Warren Beatty, but again, you know, he, I mean, it's a terrific movie, very funny and very sad, you know, really sad. And I think, I think that's a, that was a really hard thing to achieve to get, you know, this womanizing, shallow, lying, cheating hairdresser um, to be sympathetic. Mm. Which he is. I mean, especially at the end, he's just lost, and he—he's a lost little boy. Um, I don't know. Ha um, having no knowing that he'd been married, you know, five times, maybe there's a, a little bit of a similarity in the lack of maturity in relationships. I don't know, but um, it's just a great movie, and it is, and it is more slick. But you know, I feel like you know, a good filmmaker can turn anything into their own and, and do a real good job with it. I guess a lot of his later movies I did not see. Um, and, you know, he was tortured by studios, yeah. you know, and taken projects away from him and stuff. So I don't really know how much they were his. Mm. But Shampoo, yeah, great LA movie. Yeah. And I, I was completely unaware of um, Bound for Glory, which was his next film, the uh, the Woody Guthrie biopic with David yeah. Carradine. And I actually didn't know when, it, when I started watching it, I went in completely blind and mm -hmm. was like, Oh, it's okay. It's set sort of the early 20th century. It's a guy playing a guitar. Everyone's calling him Woody. It's like, is this? Oh, you didn't know it was about Woody Guthrie. No, I sort of figured it out fairly quickly, but, um, but yeah, it was such a, such a strange, uh, strange way to get into it because he's, there's a score that feels like, I mean, he's so consumed with, with music and how he uses it that I was really taken that a film about Woody Guthrie starts with quite an orchestral score. 
Mm. And I thought, is he is he messing with us? Is he trying to tell us something? Uh, mm. And I probably fixated on that for way too long, but it's um, it's it's a very I, interesting film. Yeah. I have to admit, I haven't seen it since it came out. Mm. I mean, when did it come out? What year? Seventy uh, six. Oh, okay. So I probably saw it then or a little bit after that. Seventy six. Mm. I guess I caught up on all his movies long after because I was too young to appreciate them then. Um, but I did see Bound for Glory, you know, soon after it came out, and I have not seen it since. I remember I liked it. Well, it's got the first ever Steadicam shot in it. I uh, like that. Where the, yeah. guy, the guy's on the crane, well, you know, the camera's on a crane and then just follows him through the crowd, uh, mm -hmm. which is, is something I had to go back and look at twice because I'm, we're so used to shots like that. These yeah. days, that it's um, did I it stand of, out in the movie? It did. It definitely stood out, um, mm -hmm. and and sort of yeah, trying to trying to watch it with an eye to we've never seen anything like this before. Mm -hmm. What effect is this having now? What what is he trying to say about mm -hmm. you know look, looking at people from above and then being on the same level as them? Mm -hmm. The film has it's interesting. The film has a real grapes of wrath feel about it. Right. Um, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, and and Woody Guthrie worked on that film, and John Carradine father of David Carradine, who was playing Woody Guthrie in this film, is, yeah, just one of those uh, trivial things I like uh, fixating on. Yeah. Um, so we were talking about Coming Home in yeah. this 1978, um, mm -hmm. a film about, uh, you know, Vietnam vets coming home, struggling to deal with, uh, with, with coming back into society. Talk us through your, your feelings on that film. I feel, you know, it's funny because when people talk, like critics talk about movies, or, um, you know, scholars and journalists talk about movies. They're so much more articulate than I am. Like, I don't analyze why something makes me feel a certain way, really. Um, and so, you know, I can go into more detail, you know, be beyond, oh, I just love that movie. But, you know, the Jane Fonda's performance, her revolution as a person, John Voight's revolution as a person, he starts out so angry and, you know, we see, I guess it was kind of the first time I felt like I was seeing what it was like for a wounded vet in a hospital. And I know he used a lot of um, non-actors yeah. and actual wounded vets in those scenes with the pool table. And I just felt like I was, um, I was there, you know, there was not any artifice at all. And I just cared about those people so instantly Again, not a lot of backstory. You don't, you know, you just see these people doing what they're doing in their lives, yeah. their behavior, and watching them evolve. I mean, I sob in that movie. I think, you know, there's so many scenes that I really think about in my life sometimes. And Bruce Dern, you know, um, oh, now, of course, I'm blanking on what he says. You know, when she's reaching and he's got the gun and he keeps saying, don't fucking... Is he saying, don't talk to me, don't talk, tell me something, tell me something else, tell me, say something else, say something uh, yeah, else. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it's just brilliant filmmaking and mm. brilliant editing. Um, I feel like I might have read, you know, that the last sequence, you know, where it's intercut between the two women and their lives after all this has happened and John Voight talking to the class, which, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps now. It's just... It's just beautiful writing and beautiful acting, beautiful filmmaking. Um, and the movie, you know, it transcends what it's about. You know, it's really about these people and our world. And 
It is. I mean, the the way we experience war through this movie is just horrible. Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe it was also my first time, you know, seeing what PTSD looked like when soldiers came home and, you know, the wives are rushing around and they don't know how to do this. And um, that horrible striptease that her friend Vi does. Yeah. And, that, was and, the most, um, that was the most tense part of the film for me. Yeah. Yeah. So sad, just yeah. so sad, and um, and I guess uh, is it is David Carradine's suicide in it? Um, yeah. That. Oh, it's. It, I think it's Keith Carradine. Yeah. Keith. Mm, no, Keith is the one in Nashville, right? The handsome Keith Carradine. This. Oh, this uh, is Bobby Carradine. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Robert. Carradine. Right? Yeah, Bobby Carradine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, drugs and the Vietnam War and the time period and the changing morals and it just, you know, it's just a fucking great movie. It's so, it amazing times. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's really amazing. Although I, yeah. I have to ask, I, I feel like uh, he may have had a Brewster's Millions situation going on with his music budget because, uh, like, the first ten minutes he's got the Rolling Stones, Simon and Garfunkel, yeah. Simon and Garfunkel and the Beatles – Half yeah. the songs don't really fit. Like it feels like he's just trying to cram this sort of playlist in those first ten minutes, mm. and yeah, it was it was a really odd way to start the film. I thought, but um, I don't remember. It's all of those. I'd have to pay attention. I mean, I feel like he used those st- songs in a way, just like Cat Stevens. Like nobody else should be using these songs, yeah. you know, and yeah. they get used so often. Yeah. Um, but I just feel like it set the tone yeah. so clearly. I'm curious to see that again because you thought it was funny. He has like five huge hits. Yeah, the first ten minutes. Yeah, the first ten minutes, and you found it off-putting. I I thought it was a bit like it started to feel like someone. Maybe maybe that was the sense we were trying to get of someone impatiently flicking through a jukebox to try it. Like they can't settle on anything. Maybe it's. Mm. And again, I could be reading too much into this, but it almost it, it almost feels like agitating and off-putting that we just we can't sort of get a foothold on any song because the track keeps changing um yeah maybe that's that's a mood he was trying to get us into yeah or again you know the drugs man yeah yeah true true it always comes back to that um i I do want to i I do have an idea because obviously this film stars jane fonda john voight and bruce stern let me pitch this you directing a meta queer remake with bridget fonda angelina jolie and laura dern Wait, say this again. I would. Uh, we could remake this, you know, with you know the but modern. But you didn't mention a fella. You said Laura Dern, Bridget Fonda, and Angelina Jolie, all the the, the daughters or niece of of the original stars in a queer uh, remake. Yes. I yes, I, I would love to see that. Yes, that would be probably pretty good. Not as good. Not as no. good. No. Well, different. Different. Yeah. Um, you could almost do it like a sequel uh, or, or, or a, th- a thematic sequel the way um, I think Richard Linklater did a sort of, a, he called it a spiritual sequel, I believe, to The Last Detail uh, called Last Flag Flying a couple of years ago. Oh, you know, really? Was that a similar theme? I remember that movie coming out. Yeah. Because yeah, I, 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 I watched it uh, after after watching um, Last Detail and it's... Yeah. It's it, he is right about it being a spiritual sequel rather than any sort of direct connection. It's about three old army yeah. buddies. One of their one of their sons has died, and they're sort of transporting the the uh, the coffin back uh, for the funeral. I'd like to see that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really beautiful film, and yeah, uh, yeah I you think, know, Turn would have been great in Coming Home. 
she I could see. Yeah. <laughs> at Jane Fonda's part. Yeah, she yeah. would do a beautiful job. So after that, he made, he made probably the film that after Harold and Maud is considered his great work, uh, 1979's being there. Yeah. This again, for for me, this was one of the, I can't believe I haven't seen this, uh, Mm -hmm. films and, and finally sitting down to watch it in preparation for this. Mm -hmm. And there's, did you love it? I, I absolutely adored it. Um, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't believe what I was watching. Like it was for everything I'd heard about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondhand, I was completely unprepared for what I was saying. Why? Really? What was so surprising? I'm curious. I, I think I was expecting, even having watched all of his films up until that point by the time I got to it, I think I was still expecting something a bit more, a more traditional story, uh, uh-huh. more traditional characters. I was unprepared for uh, Chauncey being so disconnected from the world because I, I, I couldn't imagine sustaining an entire film with a main mm-hmm. character who is that disconnected, uh, mm-hmm. so unaware mm-hmm. of what's going on around him. Mm-hmm. And, and I always, um, th- there's kind of a cliche about films like uh, Lumet's Network. People watch it and they go, oh, this could have been made about today's world. And even though they're yeah. right, it still kind of bugs me because I'm like, well, same as it ever was. Things have always been that way. And yet watching Being There for the first time, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking, this is a film about 2019. How was this made in the 70s? Yeah, I know. Unfortunately, because we haven't changed very much and people are the same. I, you know, I really like that movie, but I didn't, I don't love that movie. Right. Um, I feel I really wanted someone to be onto him and to have that a part of the movie. Mm. Like that somebody was onto him and still continued to treat him the way they did or just chose anyway to, to not say anything or, you know, like Shirley MacLaine may have been on to him, but chose instead that she was so lonely and in need of love that she would stay with him anyway, even though she knew he was, you know, a moron. Um, but I, I felt like that. I know I'm no, I'm, I'm one of the very few who don't think that's one of his best movies. I, I guess I feel like it, it got like the joke the it just kept repeating. You know, yeah. for a long time, and we got it. Um, but it's still a great movie. I mean, it's still a hundred times better than most movies. So <laughs> true. It, yeah. it it is interesting after those those early films about uh, you know rich kids trying to escape their privilege. That mm-hmm. he, I mean, there is a sense that he was sort of in a privileged life and just by chance got out of it and ended up in this other privileged life, but. Also seeing someone who is a newcomer to that world and doesn't fit in, mm-hmm. it's, I, I, re- I really feel like there was a part of, even though a lot of his works were adapted from, from novels and written by other people, I still yeah. feel like there's a part of him that's like looking with, with great um, envy at the lifestyles of the rich and powerful. And, huh. you know, you, you, look, you look at him and you wouldn't think, oh, he's a guy who would live in a mansion or even want to live in a mansion and have butlers and influence. But there is such a, it, there's almost a male gaze with which he looks at, at, at these mansions and the way he, he, he sort of shows these, these rich lifestyles that, that, that feels very envious. Huh. That's interesting. I, I don't think I would take it that way. I feel like he's definitely like a, you know, an outsider looking in, mm. but, he's so critical of, of, you know, the, the hallways and the servants and the butlers and the, um, coldness and, um, 
of it. But certainly, you know, he he's in Hollywood, so you know, he's hanging out with these people. He's hanging out with Jack Nicholson and mm. you know, these really wealthy, really famous people. And I mean, I imagine he always felt kind of like a outsider, right? Yeah. And certainly had stronger convictions than most people in his situation enough to like burn so many bridges, you know, and not um, compromise with his work. Mm. He eventually, you know, couldn't get hired um, because he was such a royal pain in the ass and perfectionist. And they say it's the drugs, but who knows? Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just um, he was brilliant and, and didn't care about fame or compromising. He wanted to make the right write films yeah yeah i don't know have you seen uh secondhand hearts the film he made in 81 no shall i uh if you're really curious about about his career i am i want to watch more stuff definitely yeah it's sort of it's worth it as a as a as a curio but Mm -hmm. it's the it was the first film where i couldn't identify his style there's this long complicated backstory that's told in opening in like text like it's star wars Mm -hmm. hang on this is you're describing an inciting incident that i I should be watching like but maybe that was the movie i know he made a movie and shot it and the second they wrapped it was taken from him that is basically the story of every film from this point onwards okay uh this happens at least once to him so so this film is about a a robert blake stars as a drunken cowboy who's married a woman in a in a a stupor and and Mm -hmm. sort of the two of them i guess try to make it work but it's really interesting because it's there's almost there's there's an argument that he never really made it out of the 1970s that mm-hmm. um, there's there's a documentary that came out a, I think a year ago called Hal yeah about, I saw that oh you saw that yeah oh yeah they talk about the 70s turning into the 80s and you know with Reaganism and the deregulation of monopoly laws and turning film studios into almost like a halfway house for business grads so suddenly mm-hmm. the bottom line is 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 important. New Hollywood, you know, disappears yeah, overnight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just couldn't couldn't adapt. You know, we didn't have independent cinema had to be born sort of out of, I guess, the ashes of, of, of what happened in the eighties. You know, the, yeah. it, it had to be reinvented. So there was nowhere for him to go. Yeah. And he kind of on the, it was like on the on the stroke of midnight of nineteen eighty, he turned into a pumpkin. And <laughs> that's funny. Is that when when well he made his last movie when. Uh, his last film was in '86, so he had a few. Um, yeah, he, he he had a few films uh, that I think were both critically and commercially just sort of went yeah. down downhill after that. I saw Slugger's Wife. I remember that one. Slug- um, yeah, that was that was his uh, second last film. Um, uh, maybe the only Neil Simon script I haven't liked. Uh, I have to, I'd have to see it again. I know yeah. I love Simon. I would I would imagine they would be a good pair. You would think uh, so. It's something about yeah. you know it does sound like a dream pairing, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's not a great film. A lot of the I mean there is there he does make some good films in the eighties. I think Looking to Get Out in eighty two, uh, that was the film he that stopped him from directing Tootsie. Oh, because um, wait, was didn't he get fired off Tootsie? I don't know. He may have gotten fired, but um, I, I think there was. Oh, it wasn't finished. Looking to get out was not finished, right? Yeah, and he had to he had to stay on that, and uh, and it's not it, it's not a great film, but it's it's got some good qualities. There's some amazing moments of dialogue. Thought I was going to get lucky, and I'd have to see you till tomorrow. 
Today is tomorrow as of yesterday, sucker. I don't go by when the game ends. I can't make sense out of those words, Harry. You're talking with a limp. <laughs> but he didn't write it, right? He didn't write it. He didn't write it, but he yeah. still... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... it's He's based... a writer's dream. I mean, yeah. what writer would not want him? Yeah, you know, clearly you've done more research than I have. But, it, you know, I'm still catching up on all of his stuff. Sure. You know? Sure. Um, well, I, well I, I was wondering about that because I feel like anyone who, like for you to, have re to, to really love Ashby, I feel like, you know, the true Ashby lives in the 1970s. Yeah. yeah. And it's that that thing of, you know, for the sake of completionism, I, I, I forged ahead into the 80s. Um, I'm going to do the same. I am. And I, and I just got The Landlord, so I'm finally going to see that. Okay. I feel like I actually saw that and forgot about yeah. it, but... Um, I mean, the seventies are, you know, some of the best movies. Mm. Uh, and I agree. I think it, you know, things in the eighties got weird. And then the nineties, I mean, I was lucky enough to be in that place at the right time for independent film. Um, yeah. and to make those kind of movies that we all wanted to make again. Mm. Yeah. I wish he was still alive. I mean, he'd be really old, but, um, uh, they'd be knocking on his door. Yeah. I, w yeah. I wonder if he would have thrived if he'd been able to, to keep mm -hmm. going, I wonder if he would if he would have found a new home. In the, I mean, his contemporaries were able to to keep going. Yeah. I think Altman was in, reinvented in the nineties, um, and Lumet. Lumet, yeah. I mean, all of them kept going. Mm. You know, and he sort of um, like his last few works where he did uh, he he directed the pilot for the short-lived Hill Street Blues spin-off, Beverly Hill Bunce. I tried to see that. Were you able to find it? Yeah, there's someone's pop popped a copy online. I'll send you a link. Oh, please do, because I tried. I'd be. Was it just awful, ridiculous? It's pretty ridiculous. I sure I, it was just for money, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There was a passion project after that, though. He made um, Jake's Journey, uh, which was written by Gray and starring Graham Chapman, which was this going to be his time travel TV series. The two of them, but they both got so sick that the plug got pulled and they never got to make more than one episode, which as far as I can tell doesn't exist anywhere. They both got so sick? Yeah. Cause that was around the time Chapman was, was ill and, and Ashby obviously had a lot of uh, health problems. Yeah. Um, yeah. He makes movies similar to like Marty Ritt. You know, I remember loving this movie, um, Conrack with James, with, uh, John Boyd. Right. You know, and, um, uh, Norma Ray. Like very kind of rough feeling, human, very emotional mm. 70s movies. Mm. You know, you should check out. I will. I will. Stuff. Yeah. As, as a weird kind of aside, I noticed that um, he directed siblings a lot. Mm. So he had Warren Beatty in Shampoo and Shirley MacLaine in Being There, mm -hmm. David Carradine in Bound for Glory and Robert Carradine in Coming Home, Bo Bridges in his first film and Jeff Bridges in his last film. That's wild. And well, he likes to work with his friends, I guess. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Keeping I mean, it in the families. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I wouldn't read too much into it. No, I tried to. And if I can't read anything into it, there's probably nothing to be read there because <laughs> I will, I will stretch. I will stretch to yeah. find meaning in things. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting filmography, and I, I felt like even though I, I felt that kind of decline watching his seven, uh, watching his eighties films, I, I realized that it doesn't really matter. It was a bit like watching all of Hitchcock's films, where as interesting as those later films are, that they're, they're obviously not as great as his as his mid work. 
Yeah. And but history is really kind to auteurs, I find. I think the moment you say Hal Ashby's name, no one remembers those films. They remember Harold and Maud and The Last Detail. Right. And the, those sort of lesser works become a footnote almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Well, it's funny because a lot of auteurs who are still making movies, I feel, are not making movies half as good as they used to make, you know? Yeah. And um, not that not that one should stop making films, but um, I guess when you die before you really fuck up, you know, you have more of a legacy. Although he did, you know, Hal did make some shitty movies. But, um, yeah, I don't know what I'm saying. I think you do. I think it's been a fascinating discussion. I'm, <laughs> I'm really... I'm really grateful to have been able to, uh, to chat with you about this. And, uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Lee. Well, if you want to sing out, sing out. And if you want to be free, be free. Because there's a million things to be. You know that there are. <laughs>